Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. Well, we have Jake Harris here with us tonight. Jake, I appreciate you uh, giving me some of your time. And if you want to learn what Jake is up to, head over to catchknives.com for more information. But you can also find him on Instagram. So check out at jake.realestate. Jake, I really appreciate it here tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this, uh, this episode. Well, I need to call out something. First of all, you have written a book that's really caught my eye. So uh, head over. I'm going to put this link to the Amazon page, but can you get it on your website as well? The catchknives.com site? It, usually Amazon's probably where it directs through on most of those things. So yeah, through that website or through Amazon, it doesn't make any difference. Sure. So I, I got to start things off by asking why the name of the book, Catch Knives? Uh, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, you're told to not catch falling knives. Uh, you know, it's a financial term that says avoid catching falling knives. Well, and, and the book is about distressed uh, commercial investing and distressed investing in general. And so um, my premise is that you actually have to do that. You actually have to catch knives. And by having a business plan uh, for that, you uh, can, you know, orchestrate a, a very, very profitable scenario. Uh, the quote that I put on, on the back of the street is to uh, buy when there's blood in the streets, even if the blood is your own. Uh, I go into a little bit of my own uh, story of, of becoming a millionaire before 30 and then a very sad negative net worth uh, of the subprime meltdown and uh, seeing you know the, the collapse of real estate. And so because I did not have uh, some business plans related to it, but then subsequently over you know 09, 10, 11, 12 and, and even beyond, we went on to, uh, you know, and I flipped 1,300 houses in, in 23 states. We've aggregated some single family rental portfolios where we've bought real estate and office buildings and a lot of other things. And so the principles uh, that I try to talk to uh, relate to investing in all time periods, in, even in going up markets. I wrote it and it came out in, you know, late, uh, well, actually early 2021. I thought there was a pandemic and I was like, this is the time I have these special skill sets and then all real estate value tripled. So uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't actually tell you one way or the other, but I do know at least uh, some from my experiences of doing this for 20 years that um, there are some things that you can figure out and put together as systems that allow you a little bit higher level of success, especially and allow you to catch a falling knife and make uh you know, really what could be generate wealth and it could change your life if you do this in these time periods when other people are fearful. Yeah, I was going to actually, that kind of leads into what my next question was, because in your book, you're pretty transparent about what, what happened to you there. Would you mind kind of, I know it's kind of a longer story, but would you mind summarizing your ups and downs and what you learned from it? Yeah. So, I mean, I was, uh, I guess the, the proverbial young and dumb, uh, you know, naive. I was in, into, 
I started buying houses in the early 2000s, the in investing into real estate in the early 2000s and just everything was going gangbusters. And, and even though I was buying properties at a discount, uh, less than they were uh, worth at the time, uh, there were some people that, you know, gave me uh, advice. There was this guy uh, named Robert Kiyosaki in in Arizona, and I was I met with him. He was he used to be uh, before podcast. It was Rich Dad Radio, and it was Rich Dad. He had a radio studio, and he would film stuff there. And so I was at his studio, and he was like, "Be cautious, young man. You know, easy come, easy go." And I was like, "Yeah, you just don't understand. I'm super smart. I'm buying things at a discount. Real estate's never gone down. It would have to go down more than ten or twenty percent. Like, ah, it's fine." you don't know what you're talking about. And well, he was right. I was wrong. Uh, real estate actually went down significantly more than 10 or 20%. And it went down like 80% in Phoenix and it was uh, quite terrible. And so the reality was, is I did some things really well. I was good at acquiring properties under market value, but I didn't really have a business plan. And so by not executing these business plan, what was left with, I could have had millions of dollars liquid in cash when the market turned and I would have been able to, you know, uh, not experience this negative net worth scenario. And so I was sitting and I'll give you this as, as far as a story, there's actually one moment that I be, was like super, super impactful to me. And it, it, it has actually resonated and uh, rocked me to my core. I was sitting on a street corner down in Tucson. I was working on a house because I, I did construction. I know how to, you know, do the work, do tile, cut, you know, frame walls, do electrical. I know how to do those things. And so there was the, the market was falling out and I was scrambling to make money in any way, shape or form, even though these houses were worth less than I owed. I was coming to closing table. And so I'd scrounge together $20,000 and I'd bring it to pay off the mortgage and just get out of the house. It was so early on that you couldn't do short sales. And so I'm just trying to get every nickel and dollar. And I'm going to tell you one other thing that not a lot of people realize this, but it was like, I couldn't even like use a bank anymore because I had negative cash accounts because before that I had good credit and I was honored and I'd had you know, money. After I ran out of money, they kept declining and take or taking money out of my account. So now I had negative balances. I had negative net worth. And so like now I needed to only do jobs like for cash or like I couldn't even go like cash them because if I put it in the bank, I was negative $5,000 in this one account. So then it was like, oh man. And then it was just like, it was just like this cycle of down, down, down. The girl I thought I was going to marry broke up with me partly because I was kind of miserable in a lot of different aspects. And I remember sitting on this street corner and just being broken, started crying, like just sobbing, man, everything's everything I worked for up until this almost decade or seven years of, of that has fallen out. Every, the bottoms dropped out the, 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 my health, you know, I'm 60, 70 pounds overweight. Uh, my brothers, you know, who are working with me moved back from Arizona to California and were like, Jake, you're an asshole. The girl I thought I was going to marry left me. And just like every single aspect of my life has been <sighs> eviscerated. And it was because I didn't have systems because I was focused on money. 
because I was myopically focused on money. And what the lesson it taught me is money's fake. I hope everyone becomes wildly successful and realizes that money is not the path to happiness. And so having an understanding and way to develop systems and then allow that money is still important, even though it's fake and the government just printed a lot of money, it's still the fuel in which drives the engine that is society. And so money is important. But what happens is when you become solely focused on that and you stop focusing on all the other aspects of your life, it can really cause, you know, seismic issues in your health, in your relationships, in just having a good time. And so that's what I'm transparent about in the book is conveying those things. And then I started building back up and, and rock bottom was, uh, uh, for me, the ability to start building on solid ground at least. Yeah. So that's a, that's a huge mindset recovery. I mean, I, I haven't run into a lot of people that have essentially hit such a rough patch to that to that level and then decide to get back into real estate investing again more times than not, you know, well, it'd be with any career, they would just say that that's, this isn't for me and they just walk away. What what was there a turning point? Like what caused you to to get back into the right mindset? Yeah, that's a good, great question as far as. Um... It had to do with some soul searching of who am I, you know? And, and so really I realized that I, I love real estate. It just kicked me in the teeth, dragged me around on the ground, you know, take that. And I was like, but I still wanted to do more deals. I wanted to get back and do that. And so Oftentimes, to your point, what you just said that some people go get because they were they were chasing it because they thought it was going to be easy money, mm-hmm. and, and and to be honest, it was it was you know the the, the real estate prices were crazy and you're making lots of money with very little efforts, and but it wasn't that it wasn't the money it was I liked doing the deals I liked being creative in the way that was I was doing it I liked the 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 premise of of investing. And so, although I was, you know, flipping some of these houses and then I thought I'd be smart by holding on to them, now holding them caused me to, you know, go to this, this ultimate demise, but it was like, I hadn't graduated to the next level of understanding cash flow and passive income and some of these other things. And so I was just like, no, I am going to do real estate for the rest of my life. So I, the blood in the streets was my own. I was, you know, losing, you know, and I had two houses, the final two houses out of my portfolio uh, went to foreclosure. And so I was like, okay, so how do I do this? And now I had different set of challenges. I have no credit. I have, you know, no money. Well, now how do I do real estate? Well, really, I, I, I ended up partnering with somebody that did have lots of money, but you know what they needed? They needed somebody to go do the work and very wealthy and successful people. They don't want to do the work. And so really it started like figuring out like, oh, this is a team effort. Oh, these are the people you should be on the team. Oh, these are the people that, and the the roles and the things that I'm really good at. I'm not good at those things. And so it was that introspective time of looking down and just like, I do not have to be 
all things to all roles. I do not have to try to do everything myself. And then I can lean into where I'm good and at strong and do more of those things. And I was like, I'm going to do real estate for the rest of my life. And I plan on doing this for another hundred years with an option to renew. And so like, that is the way that I'm now thinking about things is I'm doing this long-term. And so the way I invest is differently. The way that I set up and structure my company is different. And so each one of those things is now meant to be legacy and to last, you know, for a much, much longer time period. And that's the way that I'm thinking now. And from a mindset, it, it was not easy for our work week with Tim Ferriss was a book that had just come out. I didn't even have the money to buy it. Like I told you that my bank account was negative. I would walk to the bookstore and I would read it in the lobby at the little coffee shop there. And I close it up and I put it back on the shelf and then I walk home and I come walk over there and I'd read it. And then I was like, wow. And it was not about working four hours in a work week. It was how do you 10 X your productivity? How do you start thinking of things differently? How do you start? And it started changing. And I, to be honest with you, I started reading books. I started reading and leveraging other people's knowledges and experience instead of relying on my own wherewithal, my own understanding of my experience up to that time. And again, I was twenties, you know, I was in my twenties and just barely into being 30 years old. So it's like, I didn't have a whole lot of life experience. My adult life was limited. And I was like, but guess what? In these books, they have decades and decades worth of experience. And now I can go leverage other people's experiences and it allowed each little one, each book stacked on another, you know, brick into my mindset, into that foundation of a next version of myself and allowed me to start remaking who I was and how I thought one book, one page at a time over and over again. And so, and that's where I've now thought about my life is how do you systematically start stacking those bricks in the right direction? Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Uh, you know, so you, you've mentioned processes and procedures before. I can't help but notice that chapter three, you is even called titled start with the end. Can you kind of some bring that together? Like I'm, I'm guessing that has a lot to do with what you're just talking about. You re- writing a business plan. You know, when we get into real estate investing, I, I it just drives me a little crazy. More people than not, treat it like a hobby instead of a business or, you know, and, and uh, it just really struck a chord when it, when it comes to some of the things you've been talking about. Well, and is is again, based on my own experience of not having that, like you said, not running a business plan, not thinking about it of just like, what, what are we trying to accomplish here? What is our goal? What's our end goal? Start with the exit. And so when you start that way, is it allows you to also understand when things get volatile or not go to plan. And I'm going to tell you now that I've been doing this for 20 something years, I've done thousands of investments. Most of them don't go exactly to plan. Mm-hmm. Most pro formas, commercial deals, things like that. I don't know. You Maybe there's a pandemic that you didn't even underwrite for. And I was like, and I'll tell you, I didn't underwrite for any pandemics. But that doesn't mean I don't have an exit in mind now. I don't have, I have a business plan that I'm working and executing and and we're creating systems towards that end goal of a, Hey, we're going to exit in three years or five years or seven years. And so really what I learned from that was Blackstone came into the market, invitation homes. We sold, we put together these single family rental portfolios and we sold off to them. Here's the thing. They had a different business plan. 
So they were executing their own model and it was hard to compete with them based on what their business model was because they were playing a different game than us. And so by also defining what is your success for you, it allows you to start cleaning out some of those things of human nature of like greed and fear. And so what happens, you get greedy because the values start going up and be like, well, let's just, and for me too, wow, these houses just keep going up in value so much every month. Why would we ever sell? So let's, and we were able to, we're willing to take on negative cash flow, or I was willing to take on negative cash flow properties because the appreciation was so tremendous that I was like, ah, cool. I'll just keep doing this and I'll have a handful of houses, even though they have negative cash flow because they're appreciating. I had no business model. I had no exit plan. And so then when you start structuring things, if it was, Hey, let's hold this forever. Well, you know what? Positive cash flow properties really do matter. And then you need to allow a margin of safety. And so then versus flipping it in six months or three months or three years, you're going to do everything different. The investment, the fix up, what do you think you're going to do it much different? And so when you start with a business plan, it's like the whole Alice in Wonderland. She goes to the Mad Hatter and asks, which way do I go? And he said, where do you want to go? And she's like, I don't know. Then he's like, it doesn't matter which direction you go. And so that's to your point about like, there's so many people that get into real estate investing and be like, people call me up now. Uh, I'd like a good deal. Okay. What's a good deal to you? What does mm-hmm. that mean? You only want, uh, you want a 10% cash on cash return. You want an apartment building. You want an industrial center. You like dealing with tenants. You don't, you like an Airbnb. So there's so many different categories. And so it's until you define your plan of what you want to do, you're going to be wasting your time. You're wasting other people's time, your own efforts. Because now if you just look at every deal on the market, how do you get? And so you have to niche down and that's why you start with the exit. You start with what you want to do. And when you can do that, you get specificity of what you're looking for, the universe and God and things start aligning because now you know what you want and it becomes and appears. And that's the, the reticular activating system. That is all of these things that start coming alignment. When you get specific with what you want, it comes to you. Well, uh, earlier you, you were talking about, it sounded like you were kind of a one-man band at first when you did it the first time around. And then with the, with the hard patch, you kind of, you started partnering up and essentially building a team, expanding your network, if that's fair to say. Now that you've re- you're recovered, I mean, you're a decade or more into your, <laughs> now I think we can say you're successful. What are you still partnering today? What what does your investing look like today and, and the way you the strategies you incorporate? Yeah, that's we've uh you know evolved. You know, before it was working for someone else doing the work. Uh I have now uh put together funds where we are the sponsor and you know where we are you know kind of running the show and people invest with us because they have more money than time. A lot of our clients are high net worth individuals, doctors, and you know, they're making a million dollars a year. They don't need to go run and do real estate. They, they, you know, they go buy, you know, a, a net lease deal. And I don't care how much you think that it's an absolute net lease deal or commercial deal. 
If you're the sponsor and running that, it is work. It is active. And so what happens is there's some of these people that realize like, oh, I actually want to be passive investor. I don't want to deal with the call. I don't want to deal with the insurance. I don't want to deal with those. And so we've now structured where most of our investors that invest into us are via that GPLP or kind of syndication or fund type model. Some of them are opportunity zones. Some have different investment you know, lengths and time periods in which we will invest. And that's been a little bit more reactive to what the clients that we have needed. And so we created some investment vehicles that were valuable to them. This stuff around catch knives, you know, you go to that website and some courses as, as, as people have been asking for advice, like, how do you do that? How do you do, how do you underwrite a real estate deal? How do you underwrite a net lease deal? Um, and so that's kind of lended. And so I've, I've been emerging a little bit uh, to share some of these experience and educate some people in other ways. And so then there's, you know, some very select people that I do some like contract CIO work where I help them evaluate as a portfolio, if they're more looking to preserve capital, or maybe if they're in a growth mode, how to create some investment strategies around that. I do have a team, you know, I have, you know, multiple companies in which I have that, you know, feed up into that. And so I have staff and I have systems in place. And so then it is not how good is Jake. And what I found is I'm actually not very good at much of the things. Like even as a contractor, uh, you know, I was like, I know how to do that electrical and the tile work and the other things and I can do it, but I have like small spurts of effort. And I was like, and then I'm kind of off to the next thing. I have the entrepreneur, you know, curse or blessing or however you want to look at it as I'm on to the next shiny object. And so I was like, anything that relies on me specifically to do that, that's not in my core competency of finding really good deals and understanding how those do those work from the mechanisms. I'm not very good at that hmm. because I don't spend the time at it. I'm probably can figure out like, I can do accounting. I have a degree in finance. I know how that works. I can do it, but I don't like doing it. And so if it's left to me, I'm not going to get around to it. And that's why I have accountant people and I have an AP and AR people. Like I was like, because they are good at those things and they work 40 hours a week at them. So again, that is part of it's discovering who you are. What is your, your MO? What is your modus operandi? Like, what do you like doing? And then discovering like all of these other people on your team that you need to put together, those you add to like, don't try to fix your weaknesses to be the most averagest, you know, person across the board, lean more into where you're already good, double down or triple quadruple down on those areas. And then together as a team, get those other people that are good at those things to partner with you. And so that can look in a lot of different ways uh, from what people that are listening to this could potentially do. Yeah. It's it. Well, if you've read the book traction, I mean, that's pretty much what you've described. I mean, make sure people are in the right seats and you're obviously that visionary role and you need those implementers. I mean, it, it, that's, that's awesome. So, um, I wanted to remind everybody one more time here again, catchknives.com. But uh, Jake, would you mind sharing like what, what is some of the projects you're working on right now? So we bought uh, an office building, uh, a 10 story historic office building and a parking garage on the Riverwalk in San Antonio and converting that to 63 apartments, luxury apartments. And so a heavy value add 
is where uh, I could just see where we could still make sense from uh, not very many people are interested in doing that. We were pretty consistently getting outbid on all properties over the last couple of years. People were just speculating crazy amounts of rent growth and low interest rates forever. And actually, I just realized that uh, other than some land deals that I was working on, uh, I had not bought anything in almost 20 months. And it was the longest time period in my 20 years that I have not bought something. And it was not because I wasn't trying. It was just because I kept getting outbid. And I was just like, man, people are, I don't know how you make money on that. So that's a little bit, maybe being a little bit more sage, or maybe that's more wisdom or, or feeling like we were getting closer and closer to a recession and peaking in the frothiness of the market. And I believe we're in a recession, a technical recession right now. And I've, the, the values are dropping. People are, are changing. The interest rates are going up and we'll see who has swim trunks on when the tide goes out. So uh, we're getting ready to break ground on a hotel on the Riverwalk, actually right next door to that 10 story building. And it's a 120 key lifestyle luxury boutique hotel. Um, we're finishing up an apartment uh, in East Austin. So uh, that has been uh, a different and fun experience navigating supply chain issues over the last couple of years. Construction and development, new construction tends to be a little bit easier than when you're doing remodel or adaptive reuses, meaning that when you're in a building, you open up walls and you don't know what you're going to discover. New construction usually is like, here's the plans, here's what we're going to build, and this is let's go do it and get out of the way. Well, during the last 18 months, you just have no idea what problem you're going to experience today. You know, it's like playing whack-a-mole and you come in and it's just like, oh, there's no longer commercial toilet flappers available. And they're back ordered into infinity. They don't even know when they're going to come out. And so you're like, okay, what's that mean? Well, we have to redesign the plumbing you know, because it was specifically to one toilet because of these commercial ones. And so now we got to do this is change order that. And are those available? No, those aren't any sources like every single day. So those have been a unique challenges. Uh, what I'm interested for is hospitality. I think it is a uh, really fantastic um, opportunity right now to lean into more hospitality, specifically roadside motels and hotels in certain select tourist markets to rebrand and um, drop the flags. I think you're going to see over the next decade a very much more fragmentation of the hospitality industry as a whole. And so we're looking to add more of those to our portfolio. But yeah, that's what we do. We do some land assemblage, entitlement work, multifamily, ground up, and uh, a a heavy value add on – converting uses to, to other properties right now. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I got to point out there is that it's, it's great to see that you really stuck to your underwriting guidelines. I mean, well, I, and, and I bring that up because I've just, you know, I've, I've actually fallen for it myself. You, you just get into this routine acquire. It's been, it's been a while. So then you start to justify your numbers or trying to justify a higher cost instead of moving on to the next opportunity. And every single time we've, we've tried to justify a higher value. It's always bit us in the butt. I mean, it, it has, it has never worked out. You just got to stick to stick to your guidelines. 
Yeah. And that's, I mean, obviously the fact that when we bought a lot of stuff at auction, the deal of a lifetime happens about every other week. So what happens is you, you get, you fall in love with the project. I do too. Things that I really love, but you also have to understand. And that's been my experience is this is still a business and there are only so many financial things that you can do and where people get in trouble is when they speculate is when they speculate on the future, because what happens is you cannot control the future. I can't control interest rates. I don't know if it's going to be a good market in two years or a bad market in two years. So what happens is when you, and at least that's just how I build in a margin of safety to our underwriting is like, these have to make sense from like day one, they have to make sense. Or here's the toggles of the value add that I can do that forces value into this. I am not, and and I, I have not been very good at investing and letting just the overarching, like we're going to buy this and then it's going to be worth more money. We think, we hope, please, will it be worth more money? That's when it's like, it didn't quite work out that way. At least when we have value add, you know, things that we can toggle, we can force appreciation. And sometimes it, 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 ends up even better because the market and the momentum took us there. And sometimes it ends up a little bit worse, but it was like, at least we still added value. We didn't lose anything. We've also established that there's certain things that happen that the rising of the tide out of a collective market does help with that. And so we can surf in that, you know, paddle with that momentum that has to do with more demographics, population clients, where they're moving. That's why we're investing in Texas, uh, California, the West Coast have been doing a fantastic job of driving people out of California and they're moving to Texas. Texas is doing a good job. And so when there's those positive, and that's what I think why we're not going to see a very significant real estate value uh, pullback, especially in Sunbelt and areas that people have moved to is because there's more people than there are houses and apartments and, you know, maybe not office buildings, but, uh, you know, the, the, you know, sticks and bricks are not enough to accommodate the existing people that are trying to move work and, and, uh, you know, live in right now in markets like Texas. Sure. No, I, I, we could spend some more time on, on the whole concept that I, I really find it interesting when you, when you, a, a big part of your strategy, it sounds like you're taking some old, is it old warehouse buildings that you're converting to apartments? We have a, a company in my area that's doing exactly that. And, and they've been, some of these places, when you say distressed properties, they've been vacant for decades and they're turning them into like really nice apartments now. Well, and that's because there's kind of an urban renaissance the country over where historically those might've been industrial centers, but they're like super close to downtown or maybe it's where all the Mm -hmm. rad coffee shops and, you know, artists have lived. And so now it finally makes sense from an economic standpoint to spend the money to, you know, turn that warehouse into some lofts. And that's what we've done. We've done some of those things and it makes sense. And again, it comes, it just becomes an economic, not very many people can do that. There are lots of challenges to that. And especially like industrial sites, there's things that can have contamination. Mm-hmm. So even if, if you, and, and that's what I talk about in, in then the net lease kind of course that I, I coach, you know, people or walk people through is that 
you could buy a property. They could give it to you for free. Jack, you give me a property and say, here you go. Here's this property. It's free. Take it, Jake. And I go, oh, I'm in. Sign me up. Free sounds like a good price. Or maybe it was worth $10 million and now you're giving it to me for a million dollars. I'm like, wow, look at that. 90% off. What a great deal. Well, guess what? With some of these contamination environmental issues, the person that owns it is on hook for the cleanup. And if there's contamination, so you could be on the hook for millions of dollars of environmental cleanup because you are the owner. Hmm. And so because someone gave it to you or because someone, you know, you bought it for on a super cheap, cheap, it happened to be in an industrial area before, but look, there's a, you know, cool little coffee shop there. I'll just buy this. It should be fine. So, so many people, because it's going direct, it's not going through a broker. They don't do or not getting traditional financing. Traditional banks are going to require you to get a phase one or a phase two to check out the environmental conditions of that land. Gas stations, dry cleaners, dry cleaners are probably one of the most contaminated sites that exist because they use all kinds of chemicals in there and it contaminates the soil. And if you have groundwater that's close to you, it contaminates the other properties around you. And so you could have a multi-million dollar cleanup that is also contaminating neighbor properties that also you can't even sell until you do a, 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 a big process and take 10 years. And so it was like, you could go bankrupt buying a $0 property if you don't know what you're doing. Hmm. That's why there's systems even for acquiring property. Right. Well, yeah, I could tell you, we could probably spend another whole episode just on that. That's, that's awesome. So, well, uh, one more time, Jake, you can find him at catchknives.com or on his Instagram at jake.realestate. But I have a couple rapid fire questions for you, Jake, as we close this out, if you're ready for them. I'm ready. Okay. So I'm always going to ask you if you could recommend a book, but you're not allowed to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I am going to say my favorite real estate book, and that is Powerhouse Principles by George Perez. Okay. Well, that's awesome. I'll have to add that to my list. What is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I would say betting on yourself, you know, uh, just because, you know, most of the real estate projects that go wrong or right, it's not because you're, you know, uh, egregiously off on the underwriting. It oftentimes has to do with the, you know, the jockey that is running it. And so the, the six inches between your own head is the most important real estate that exists. And so mindset and improvement and betting on yourself. And so if somebody only had $10,000 to invest or $20,000, I would say bet on yourself and improve yourself first and foremost, because the returns on that are going to be exponentially greater than investing into any single piece of real estate. Awesome. What is the worst piece of business advice you've ever received? The worst. Probably advice I gave to myself. Uh, it was probably <laughs> like, you can do it yourself. You know, uh, uh, you, know you, uh, you know, figure it out on your own. Uh, I don't know that I've, yeah, I, I would say, you know, um, just my own advice to myself is that I was smart enough to figure it out on my own. While I am clever in certain areas, uh, there's people a lot wiser than me, uh, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Yep. And if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what it would be, what would that be? Go bigger. 
Go bigger. I hear that a lot. I keep, I, I, that's a pretty common answer. So uh, I was like, I don't know, you know, we're running up on time. I'm going to give you the, the fast cliff notes versions of it. And, and it's obviously you're not your rapid fire question, but I was in Miami and there was a kid, I say kid, late twenties, um, had just finished building a, I want to say it was a 40 story condo project. And I was like, that was on kind of my bucket list vision is build a skyscraper. Maybe that's, you know, you know, to homage or maybe it's a phallic symbol of, you know, greatness or whatever it is that you want to uh, attest to why people build skyscrapers. But he built a skyscraper and he made like $30 million on it. And because I was down there and I was like, well, I've done this many thousands of properties and hundreds of millions. And at some point, I'm going to be good enough to go do a skyscraper like that. So I met him and I was like, wow, how'd you do this? Did your dad do this? You know, do you have a lot of money? You know, did you, you know, win the lottery? Like, tell me more. And uh, he was like, no, I didn't grow up in this. I just came to the country a few years ago. I came from Venezuela and with no money. And you know what I did? I bought the land that was for sale. It was listed. There was a sign up there. And I was like, hey, I'd like to buy that. And there was a contractor and an architect that were doing a condo project just down the street. They took that. They put, they said, I said, hey, could you build that there? And they said, yeah, we can. And then the real estate agent that was selling those said, hey, we have more people that can buy those condos. And so they came in and said, hey, we could buy those condos. Here's a whole bunch of offers on them. And they said, oh, that's fantastic. So they had a contractor and architect and people that were willing to buy them. And so they went and took that and took the package to the bank and the bank said, Hey, well, we can finance this because we have all these buyers. So why don't you do that? And so it's not about how much credit or how much money you have or how much experience, because we know this contractor is good and this architect's good. And these people are already buying the condos. So let's go ahead and do it. And they did the project. And so he built it out. He didn't do a market study. He didn't do anything. It was the very first real estate project he ever did his entire life. He didn't have any experience. He didn't go to any mastermind courses. He didn't do any education or get a grad school degree. He just simply did. He's like, I came to this country because this is the land of opportunity. And I just was told that I had to go work hard and go do it and take action. And so when I say that is like his very first project at 20 something years old was build a hundred million dollar skyscraper. He made $30 million profit on the very first deal that he ever did. And it hit me over the head, like a two by four that I was like, I need to play bigger and everyone else needs to play bigger and just go take action. I don't care if you actually fail at it because guess what? I did fail at it and you can fail at the little things just as easily as you can fail at the big things. So play bigger. Wow. I can't ask for a better way to end this episode. That was awesome, Jake. Um, And I'm not even going to bother asking you the last question, Uh, but uh, Jake, I really appreciate your time. Uh, You're welcome back anytime. I hope you'll take me up on that. Absolutely. Again, catchknives.com or Instagram at jake.realestate. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.